We were talking, sorry. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see your smiling faces and all the little ones filling the pews. I love it. I just He doesn't let me preach, so I don't get to see your smiling faces all that much, but I, it's good to see it. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church and just some housekeeping. We have the offering box in the back. There's coffee and restrooms downstairs. If your kids are crying and you need to bring them downstairs, you can. And we're still continuing our missions in July, even though it's August. And we're going to be wrapping it up with Pastor doing recap. But we're going to start at the regular time, 6.30 for visiting, 6.45 for Something like that. We'll just wait for my emails because I don't know what I'm doing yet with it. Um, children's choir, our youth choir, was postponed for today because we have a few sick kids, but it'll be happening, Lord willing, on the 28th. Please let Blake, Amber, or Amanda know if you want your young child to participate in that. And there's one other announcement that I forgot about. Yes. Game night is in the bulletin. Please, please, please respond to Julia if you're interested in going to that because then we can order enough pizza for it. Thank you. Andy, now we're going to have a Life of Christ reading, and we'll ask Jerry to come forward and read that for us. And if I wrote it down correctly, it's from Matthew chapter 4. 1 through 11 if you want to turn. Otherwise, you can just listen to Jerry as he reads. Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And, oh, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, Again it is written, You shall not. Put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give unto you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said unto him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Providentially, in our reading, Jerry, if you'll stay up here, we're going to have a special prayer. I'd like the elders to stay up here and pray for us. I know we have our pastoral prayer. By the way, in this passage that he just read, providentially, it includes our meditation verse for this week from Psalm 91, 11 through 13, and hopefully you can get the um, connection there. Um, we have a special friend with us, Tim Huffman from Kansas. Are you going to the University of Kansas in sophomore this year? Um, Tim, come on up here and let 
me and the other elders to embarrass you to stand right here. We want to pray for you before you leave. Um, Tim uh, is from Kansas, and he has been in our city for a few months now and going out and doing some of the hardest work to make a little money for school and to learn, I suppose, on how to do that. And, you know, interesting enough, he, he's been just knocking door to door working for a company. He, he happened to hit uh, uh, Isaac's house and my house uh, just by random circumstance. But in any case, Did um, uh, I think there, he's still there's he got one out of two 50 percent closing ratio. I think he is going to be a good marketing agent. Uh, Tim, I, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I really appreciate you. the day you came in the first time and I met you, and you brought a friend uh, that you met who happened to be a Mormon. But you, but, and then I heard where your background is, and I recognized immediately that uh, you had a, an interest to share Christ with others. And... Uh, if, if I was in a situation where I sent my son away to uh, a place far away, I would hope he would find uh, a communion of Christ to worship together with. And uh, you have done that. And it's, it's just a blessing to meet your parents as well. And I know they have great concerns. And we're greatly in, uh, joyful that he was able to be with us for such a short, short time. In any case, uh, I have a gift for you from the church. It's this Valley of Vision. This is a book on prayer, and I would encourage you to consider reading it uh, from time to time. They're like devotionals. You can read the prayers of other saints that have gone on. For example, here's one from Regeneration. O God of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion rest thy, resist thy holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. It's prayers like these that might be encouraging to you in your days as you study and work and then go on and to see how God might use you in your life. Uh, you've been a blessing to us just to see a young man so far away from home have a great commitment to Christ and want to be with Christ's people and want to hear the word and pray and sing uh, praises to God, uh, it, it's a great blessing. And we want to send you off with a prayer. So we'll include you in our pastoral prayer, have the elders come and stand with you and lay hands on you if you don't mind. And, and we want to pray for you in particular and for Christ and his witness to go out through the land. Let us, church, let us pray now, prepare our heart to worship and bless Tim as he goes. Today will be his last Sunday with us. Father, we're thankful for Tim and his witness to you and uh, his commitment to Christ. I pray that indeed you would bless him and keep him, uh, make your face to shine upon him, truly give him great courage and conviction in the days ahead where he might be surrounded in a, a sea of humanity that uh, discards uh, the, your truth and righteousness. I pray that he will continually pursue that. May we be a good re reminder and remembrance to him. He's been one to us to know that there are many, uh, many sons and daughters that will come to Christ and make that commitment in various parts of our land. I pray that that will continue to flourish. I pray that we would have the courage and conviction to continue to trust 
and you in all things. I pray, Father, that you will cause us then to, to make Christ first in our lives. And to the degree that we're gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ, may that truly be what unites us together, our holy union with Christ. And as we part and go our different ways, the ways that life has brought us, I do pray that we would be bound together by Christ and Christ alone. And what a joyous reunion we'll have in the eternal state uh, with one another and ultimately with Jesus Christ our Lord. May he be exalted in this day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, team. Take care. All right, well, let's take our hymn books and stand, and let's all sing this morning number 302, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Philippians 1.4. 302.
choir loft here. And uh, I can't sing to save my life, but I love music and I love the Psalms. In Sunday school class, we were taking a deep look at Psalm 37. I would encourage you later on this week or even today to look at Psalm 37. Do not do it during the sermon. That is not good church etiquette. But for our scripture reading, we're going to look at Psalm 120 and 121. And these are good short psalms that, especially Psalm 121, is good to commit to memory, to share with folks who are going through trouble. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And it's good to hear it again. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Hear the word, church. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have redeemed our souls, and I pray that you would redeem others today, even those who have not repented and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Have mercy on them and redeem them as you redeemed us. I ask that you, through your spirit, would give us an assurance of our salvation and that we would be assured even further that you are with us through the daily strife, through a topsy-turvy world, that you who made heaven and earth never take a day off, that you are in complete control of every molecule, every atom of this wonderful universe, and that you know each one of us by name. You know the struggles we're going through, the triumphs we have, the challenges and battles we face, even the, the minor irritations of daily life. And I ask that you would strengthen us through your word, through the encouragement of brothers and sisters who have gone through the same trials that we have. 
Open our eyes, Lord, to the needs around us and give us a bold courage to share the answer that is Jesus Christ. Help us to share our faith with our neighbors, friends, family, colleagues. Have mercy on their souls. I ask that you would guide our nation back to godly living. Turn the minds and hearts of our leaders back to you and stop the downward spiral into sin. I ask for your protection on believers throughout this world, whether they experience minor trouble as in the U.S. and Canada or great persecution and have churches burned or their lives threatened, even taken away. Keep your children. Protect us. Help us to live lives for your glory. I ask for your strength even today for the missionaries we support through AIT. Give them a holy, godly boldness to proclaim your word. And may that word not return void, but win souls and strengthen your children. Fill our pastor with your spirit when he brings the message this morning that he would preach well, powerfully, with godly insight, and help us to worship you through the lessons we learn. Watch over the offering. Give us wisdom to use it in great stewardship. Thank you for how you've provided. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our hymn books and stand once more and turn to number 420. 420, come ye sinners poor and needy.
Come, everyone who is thirsty, Isaiah 55, 1, 420. <clears throat>
context. Last week, we talked about the affirmation of this truth, this gospel truth that has been given to us in the Word of God was affirmed by none other than Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And then it certainly was by his disciples, those who followed him, affirmed all those things. And today we're going to look at the third affirmation in this text, and that is there's a statement in verse 4 that God himself bore direct witness. This word that we teach and preach, this gospel message about Jesus Christ our Lord, is absolute truth, whether you believe it or not. It is Jesus Christ who declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And whether someone would want to affirm that today or not, it doesn't change what actually exists. And the preacher of Hebrews gives great warning to his church audience, if you will, He's concerned that folks might drift away from this solid rock, this anchor of truth, this lifeline of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. There are some, no doubt, within his community that might hear the message and walk away from the faith. We call that an apostate. They know the truth, but they walk away from it. There may be others who are certainly affirming the truth, but are really apathetic towards it. Maybe they are Christians, but they aren't engaging in that truth about Jesus Christ. And so whether you're antagonistic about Christ or apathetic, it, it is a message for all of us, even if you affirm it. It's that we should affirm it more is the call here. Beloved, we live in a day and time which it's bewildering to me that any kinds of claims about absolute truth are, are met with great antagonism. That what is being communicated in at least our culture today is that, well, you have a truth that's right for you and that's good for you, but I have my truth. They don't say that about all truth claims. It's just those claims that are not consistent with whatever contemporary worldview we happen to, to be in, whatever groupthink is going on, whatever man-centered ideologies have the greatest strength in our day. Anything indifferent to that is challenged. The secular worldview is in great flux. It's constantly changing because it really has no solid anchor in absolute truth. It, it, it skirts around the issue a bit, but it isn't tied to that which is absolute. Can I tell you where that is? It is in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? You need to get to know him. Human 
ideology coming from just the mind of men, which is a flawed and failed mind, doesn't lead to flourishing. It will lead to failure. Christ will lead to flourishing. And this is the problem with our thinking in today's culture about those things that are true and right. Because as Paul would tell really a couple thousand years ago to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, the real problem is not honoring God for whom he really is and then responding in thanksgiving to him. By not doing this, what happens is, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, they will then become futile in their thinking. And beyond that, that futility of thought, which you could see a lot in our day, but beyond that, their foolish hearts are darkened. That is, this failure to recognize God for who he is, Jesus Christ as indeed the truth, the way, the life, it is also by rejecting him brings about a hardness of heart, a foolish heart that is darkened as opposed to enlightened. Claiming to be wise, he'll go on to say, and that would be their perspective, wise where? Wise in their own mind and thoughts. They'll exchange the glory for go of God, for, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. That is idolatry. And therefore, here is the judgment. If that is what you want, God will give you up. It is a judgment. He'll give them up to what? To the very lusts of their own hearts, to impurity, to the degrading and dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves. It'll lead not to flourishing, but to death and destruction. Why? Because they exchange the truth. The truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature, that is themselves, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The preacher of Hebrews sees that in the world in which he lived and preached this message. And that world continues indeed even to this day. It is a great danger, as Paul described it, as this preacher described it. What is the danger? He, in Hebrews, it's called spiritual drift. Abandoning the truth that is in Jesus Christ is like cutting your anchor line away from the dock and drifting to oblivion and subject to destructive winds and waves which will destroy your soul. No wonder it's a great heartfelt warning. What a burden it would be to proclaim this message and know there are some that may walk away, that would abandon and that would lead to their destruction. Our objective source of truth, how can we be sure that this is indeed what we're saying here that is contained within the text of the word of God before you? How can we be certain that this is absolute truth? This would be 
this, the resource by which all other ideas and ideologies would be measured? Well, it would be good enough that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came, lived among us, and said it was. That should end it all. But beyond that, those that were with him, those that heard him, the apostles, they went about saying the same thing. And today, what we're going to look at is really the third element to that, the authentication given by God himself, the very testimony of God. It was given to all of humanity through two specific ways. One is these supernatural works. Two is the spiritual gifts that will continue on. These supernatural works occurred in abundance at the very time of the incarnation and ministry of Jesus Christ, followed by the apostles, and then beyond that, there are spiritual gifts that are, that are continually being given, which I hope to get into, even to this day, which will bring about the certainty that you would need of this divine truth of Jesus Christ. All of this comes through the work of God. Let's read the text here for our hearing in verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews chapter 2. Remember the preacher tells us about Jesus Christ. Great truths about him, seven dogmatic statements, seven cross-references in the Old Testament. And based on that, he says, therefore, in verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. There it is, much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would hear and heed your word. Send this Holy Spirit to allow us to illuminate our hearts and minds. That we would not be darkened to this truth, but it might bring great light to our own minds. That indeed we would pay much more closer attention because the work of your grace in our hearts and minds. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, look here at verse 3. This how shall we escape, it, it, it functions as a transition to remind the hearer to give heed to this great salvation because it has been authenticated by God. This is indeed the testimony of God. The gospel message through Jesus Christ our Lord, this good news, is the only escape from certain judgment. We're concerned about getting uh, diseases. We're concerned about 
afflictions that could, call, that could br- come about. But, but here is, there is an absolute certainty, and that is death. And it is only through Jesus Christ that you will have life. This message, as I mentioned, was declared by the Lord. It was attested to by the apostles. But now the focus here in verse 4 notices that God also bore witness. This bearing witness, two words here in English, is really one long Greek word, which I won't pronounce because <laughs> I'll mess it up, I'm sure. Actually, no one knows how to p- pronounce first century Greek called koine, so say it any way you want. We don't have an audio recording of it. In any case, the, the word here is a compound word for, and we've translated with two words, bore witness concerning God. Witness is martyrio, it's a word from which we get um, martyr. And then there's two prefixes, not just one, but two added to the front of it. Soon and peri are added to it. it the, the, the idea here, the translation, if you will, is... Um, it has a soon and epi, I meant to say. It literally means that God witnessed or testified alongside. That's why it uses those two prefixes. That is, the point is that this great salvation was authenticated because of God's actual engagement and involvement alongside of what was spoken and the person that spoke it. These signs that are mentioned here and the gifts that are mentioned here authenticated what was said. It authenticated who said it. Both the message and the messenger is authenticated by God. There are two categories here that are being authenticated. Now, it looks like four. If you read the text, it says signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. But let me simplify this for you. Really, what the, uh, how the authentication is coming about, how God authenticates this message and the messenger that is giving the message is through the first category of spiritual, of sorry, of supernatural works. That's the words signs, wonders, and then various miracles. These three concepts share the same range of meaning. They are synonyms. They're not exactly the same. They're words that are used to describe, and we'll break this down in a minute, various aspects of supernatural works. Three words are used here, but they share the same range of meaning. They are emphasizing those works that are supernatural. The second category, and we'll get to that too, Lord willing, is it says gifts of the Holy Spirit. That is, and I'll, I'll classify it as spiritual gifts. So you have two categories, supernatural works, he authenticates, and he, ex- he authenticates both the message and the messenger by spiritual gifts. Both of these, by the way, are accomplished by God who does so, notice the text, according 
to his will. Let's look at this first group. I call them supernatural works, signs, wonders, and various miracles. These are not exactly the same, but I said they're in the same category of work. The work by which God accomplishes outside of what we might think of as natural occurrences. And by the way, I, at this point, I've got to stop and insert a little rabbit trail. Supernatural works are those things that are done outside of what we consider natural occurrences. I want to tell you this, that all occurrences are controlled by God. All acts of nature are under God's control. There is nothing that occurs outside of his governance. Let me read you a psalm, selection of it. For example, Psalm 135, 5-7. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, and the Lord here is Yahweh for God, as Jeremy likes to say. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for rains and brings forth wind from his storehouses. There's no such thing as Mother Nature. That's a figment of the mind of man. God is continually engaged in what we might think of as natural forces. Jesus Christ himself, Hebrews 1.3, as we've already looked at, at the very beginning, is doing what? Upholding all things by the word of his power. You understand, everything would absolutely fall apart if it wasn't for God engaged even in current creation as we think of it. So when I talk about supernatural works, signs, wonders, and miracles that are stated here, these really are works that are outside of the norm that we expect. We don't expect the sun today to stop its rotation. We don't expect waters of a great sea to just all of a sudden part and dry land remained underneath. That's, that's not what we would expect. We don't expect someone to be able to, to see some sort of great storm and say, be calm, and immediately it's calm. It doesn't happen immediately. This is not what is what we think of as normal. This is how God normally acts. How God normally acts or interacts with his creation is what we observe and what we expect. But he is interacting all the time. We just observe how he normally does it. In the normal course of this life and the world in which we live, this is a quite a grace which God gives us some sense of consistency that we can expect certain things to, to happen so that we can make certain plans. We can have a springtime and a harvest, for example. This is God's grace in giving 
order to the world in which we live. But outside of this, quote-unquote, natural state, expected condition, normal, there are times in which God would do something that is unexpected or not normal in the way we would think of as normal, the way we would expect things to work out. These occasions, by the way, are purposeful. God doesn't do anything without purpose. These supernatural, then, works are simply God's working outside of what is expected to do something that we observe as different, and they're described here in our text by three words, signs, wonders, and miracles. I said they share the same range of meaning. All of them are those things that aren't expected in the quote-unquote natural state the way God normally works, but they're slightly different, each and every one. The first, signs, that is mentioned here is, uh, is a supernatural work that is like a, think of a stop sign that has been purposely planted to point to something specific. And remember, when I make statements like this, these are still even generalities because all these three words share the same range of, of meaning. But John uses, and we'll look at that in the Gospel of John, John uses signs in a specific way in his Gospel as we've gone through it. If you remember, there are seven specific signs pointing to, again, the authenticity of the message and the messenger, and these signs are directly given by God. If you remember early on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to then this Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, he's part of the ruling class. He comes to Jesus at night, John chapter 3, verse 2. He comes to a night, no doubt, because uh, he, he may want a secret audience coming to Jesus. But he says to them in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How does he know that Jesus is someone that is coming from God? Because God authenticated the message and the messenger. And he says it here in verse 2, for no one can do these signs, think of a signpost, unless that you do, unless God is with him. By the way, we couldn't go through half of what Jesus actually did. We wouldn't have enough time. We wouldn't have enough books to write about it. John will tell us as he closes out this gospel. But let me just walk you through a familiar one, and people's reactions to that sign, particularly from John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and I invite you, we'll see what we can walk through as we, we just look at it as a review. No one can do these signs, these absolute unmistakable pointers of divine origin, authenticated by God, unless God is with him. Nicodemus saw the signs. 
many others do not. That is John chapter 6, and if you remember the context, we call this the feeding of the 5,000. Remember the way they would have kept records at that time, 5,000 was at least 10 and probably a lot closer to 20,000. They only counted the men. But there were women there, and there were also children there. And by the way, they probably had big families back then particularly. So it, this may very well have been as many as 20,000 people. Nevertheless, look down to verse 10. Jesus then tells the people, big crowd, huge crowd, to sit down because there's a lot of places to sit, a lot of grass right there. So there are about 5,000 in number of the men. So he takes the loaves, and when he given thanks, he distributed to them who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their field, their fill, the, told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, fragments that nothing may be lost. They didn't have any food. They had one little lunchbox, and this is what Jesus does when he blesses it. It feeds all of them. They all get as much as they want. And beyond that, there is extra left over by those who had eaten. So notice, look down to verse 14. When the people saw the, and here's the word, sign that he had done. What is their response? They know what this is. This is an absolute marker put in the earth, if you will, by God in doing this miracle that cannot be done any other way. He says, this indeed, the prophet who is to come into the world. It's pointing back to say that this is indeed the Messiah, God's prophet. And what is their reaction? Jesus recognizes that. This is prior to the cross. He knows what's going to happen. It's all planned out. And so, perceiving that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, not the king that he truly is, but an earthly king who might be able to make bread out of nothing, Jesus goes and withdraws by the mountain by himself. If you look down to verse 16, two other miracles actually occur in this narrative. In 16 through 21, here you have then the disciples just finished this event. Big deal, 20,000 people perhaps see this sign, call out that this is indeed the prophet. Jesus slips away. The disciples go out on a boat in the sea. It's dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them, verse 17. And so the storm brews up out there. It becomes rough, the sea does. Strong winds are blowing, verse 18. And so they row about three or four miles out in the sea and aren't really getting anywhere, and they were frightened. And here's some professional fishermen out to sea that are frightened. I would say, yeah, it's a pretty big storm. They saw then, verse 19, Jesus walking on the sea. There's the miracle. He comes near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. 
They were glad to take him into the boat. And then here's another miracle. Immediately the boat was at the land. Did you notice that one? He steps in the boat and immediately they're at the land. Verse 25 picks it up here where now the people come looking for Jesus. And they, they know he's on this, the other side of the sea because he got in the boat with them, immediately went across. And Jesus says to them, well, why'd you come here? And, and um, or they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? I'm sorry. And verse 26, Jesus answers, truly, truly, that is absolutely of surety, amen, amen. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs. Jesus Christ knows what's in their heart. They saw the signs, but they're not seeking Christ because of the signs. Instead, he says, you ate your fill of loaves. In other words, that's what interests you most in life. It isn't Christ. It's this, oh, here's a chance for me to get a free lunch, if you will. Could you imagine if this was the king? We, we wouldn't have to work anymore. His response, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And I want you to notice this phrase, for on him God the Father has set his seal. That's the authentication. The sign is a seal. It's an absolute verity. It, it is God authenticating the message and the messenger, Jesus Christ. He then tells them when they say, well, well, we don't get it. What do we need to do? He says, here is the work that you need to do. Believe on him whom he has sent. And don't get tripped up in, okay, is this a work or what? The, the idea is this. Forget it. It's believe Christ. Listen to him. Hear his message. He has been authenticated. That's the point. But I find this interesting. So they said to him, verse 30, then what sign do you do that we might believe? Can I assure you that grand miracle of feeding however many thousands of people it was that they just witnessed? What greater sign could he do Th that he disappeared and immediately appeared on the other shore? What, what more could he do? Perhaps some even might have perceived him walking on the water. I don't know that part. But what more could he do than this? God has set the seal, and one sign would be enough. But he's done many up to this point, and this is a specific one. And then they're asking him, well, what sign are you going to do? Jesus continues the dialogue with them. They're, they're, they're back to their bread. They're back to those things that are part of their material life looking for bread in the wilderness, verse 31. Bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus 
turns that imagery and points in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Who is that? It is Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life, then, he would say. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, will never thirst. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is this the anchor of your soul? That's the point. Or is it everything else? Interesting, he said, but I say to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. He's exposing their unbelief. They're not affirming that sign that confirms Jesus Christ by putting their faith and trust in him. And he explained how this work comes about. You see, even this work is a very grace of God. He'll say in verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all that comes to me, I will never cast out. What a great blessing. Come to Jesus Christ by faith, and you'll, uh, you'll recognize that that indeed is a gift of God, and Jesus Christ will never destroy and throw away that gift. That's how you have eternal assurance of salvation. He, he is the one, he says, he comes down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me, and I should, that I should lose nothing that he has given, but raise it up on the last day. Here's another description of it. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look to Jesus Christ. Believe in him. That's the call. The Jews, well, they grumbled about it. Because of their unbelief, they didn't see the sign. Seeing the sign here and believing it isn't a matter of just working out the logistics, the facts, and all of that. You know how belief comes? Is through the work of God's grace in the heart where you'll see and look and believe. The second supernatural work that's mentioned here in Hebrews is the work of wonders. And I'll try to get, I won't go as lengthy on that because it, it parallels, it's, it's similar but the second word is sign. So there's an absolute sign that is, is put out to authenticate what is being said, truth, and you have no excuse for rejecting it. Beyond that, when you think about those signs or those supernatural works, they're described as wonders. Wonders really emphasizes the divine power to accomplish that task, whatever that sign post might have been. It is the power to accomplish that. This is not something that could be done by man. This is not something that can be replicated. 
Matthew, I'll just read this section here from Matthew 8, 23. A description of a great storm on the sea, as we've mentioned before. Matthew 23, uh, 8, 23. Jesus gets in the boat. Remember, th- this kind of stuff happened all the time. These are just what we're getting a record of, some of them. His disciples follows him. And there's a storm that arises on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves and Jesus was asleep in the boat. Remember that? So what do they do? They went and awoke him and said, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he says to them, Why are you afraid? Ye of little, what? Faith. That's the problem. So Jesus then stands up rebukes the wind and the sea, and then there's a great calm. I alluded to that earlier. Can you imagine that? Great storm, great winds. He rebukes it. He just says, stop, and immediately there is calm. You know, if you're out in the sea in a storm and then it passes, it doesn't pass immediately. It's gradual. That's how God normally works. This is a supernatural work. Both of them are works of God. Here is a demonstrating someone who has a command over the, the, the sea in that situation. They can turn it immediately to great calm. This is the response of the disciples. They marveled. They marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Do you know anybody that can really do this? Think about it. I mean, I've heard people pray, and it's okay to pray for safety and calm and so forth. This is totally different. This is a a great divine power that can stop the wind, that can calm the sea. Indeed, it is then a wonder in the sense of beyond our uh, ability to grasp. Now, the third word used in Hebrews here about supernatural works is the word miracles. Miracles refer mostly to the events themselves, the events that are supernatural. The sign was a like a sign to to uh, specifically authenticate the the wonders is is the power to accomplish that, and the miracle is just a description of the event itself. It is, a, it, it is a supernatural event. It takes a miracle to turn water into wine. It, it takes a, a miracle to multiply the, the fish and bread to feed thousands. It takes a, a miracle, if you will, to raise the dead, particularly after he's in a state of absolute decay. These are are miraculous events. These are the characteristic of Jesus Christ, and he was authenticated by these various miracles he did. If you read through the Gospels, for example, you're going to find time after time after time in which miracles occur. This wasn't an isolated event. Jesus went everywhere and engaging in those miracles and engaging in being able to 
calm what we might think of as natural forces and even spiritual forces in the sense of his control over demonic forces as well. Beyond that, those that were associated with Jesus Christ, the apostles, they also received that authentication as well. These signs and wonders and miracles were done by the apostles who followed Jesus Christ, who carried his word then to the nations. I'll read you a text, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Same idea there. In the economy of God, signs and wonders and miracles are not normative by definition. God is supernaturally working, if you will, in all things, all the time. But there are times in which God has a specific purpose to engage in a different way, is what I'm getting at. God doesn't perform magic tricks or put on a show just to get people to come to faith. Remember, in the feeding of the, of the 5,000, as we call it, they weren't following Christ because of this sign. They were following him because of food, what they can get out of it. It doesn't bring about faith, it, but, it, but it does confirm that indeed it is God who accomplishes these things. They, they affirm the message and the messenger. And there are a few times in history when God works in this way. It isn't normal. It's special. It's unique. And biblically, you can think about three periods of time in which this was helpful in the affirmation of the message and the messenger. The first one was with Moses and followed by Joshua who followed him. Moses performed a number of miracles, not tons, but, but many. Wonders and powers, signs, if you will. And then a period of time went by, that was the law. Then the prophets came on the scene as most notable in communicating God's message. And how were they affirmed? Well, you'll read the stories about Elijah and the one that followed him, his protege, Elisha, who performed a certain amount of what we would call miracles, signs, and wonders by the power of God. The third period of time is this period we're talking about right now. You have Jesus who works these signs and wonders and miracles in a far greater way than has ever done before. And then it is those miracles are followed, those works are accomplished and carried out by those who uh, immediately followed Christ, that is the apostles, and you could read that in the book of Acts. This supernatural phenomena, it increased under the time of Jesus Christ exponentially, beyond what you could imagine. This uniqueness here is a stamp and a sign of authority of the very truth of God and that is the testimony of God of the affirmation of the person and work of Jesus Christ 
But these works and miracles shouldn't be expected. They're not normative, is what I'm saying. The uniqueness of it points to the special nature of the affirmation that's given. It's blasphemy to say that this authentication through signs, wonders, and miracles needs to happen now. It's blasphemy to the Son who has spoken. It is blasphemy to the Son who has done this. It is blasphemy to the Son who has given his uh, authority over to his apostles to do the same and confirmed it by mighty works done by them. If you want to say that you're doing some of that, go part the Tennessee River over here and walk on dry land. Don't pull off foolishness. Go, go find a corpse that's in the grave and in a state of decay and raise them up. None of this foolishness that's going on today is anywhere close to what happened here. And it isn't just a matter of interpretation. I would hold to you, beloved, particularly in the strength of the preaching here from the book of Hebrews, that this, these are markers of Jesus Christ, and anything less is blasphemy. Jesus Christ has been confirmed. He has been authenticated. Listen to him. Not to some word that somebody says, oh, I got a word from God. Here, here's your word of God right here. And it's objective. And it's been affirmed already. Don't minimize it. You say, well, how are we going to know today? That, that was great back then. But by the way, if you, again, if you look here in these affirmations by the signs, wonders, and, and miracles, th there, there was most of the people walked away from all of that. It is only by faith that you would affirm this anyway. And it's reassuring to those who have faith in God who see what God actually does and then turns around in great praise to him. But my question is simply this, then. For these people that think that God needs a little help with their show to get people to come to faith, God does have a way to affirm that message right now. Back to Hebrews, chapter 2 and verse 4. That's the second category that I'm talking about. The ministry of Christ is over. He's the cornerstone. The prophets and the pro apostles, they, they, they're like the foundation so how is it going to continue? It's through the supernatural work of God's grace through, notice this, gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's how it will continue. There's no sense in continuing the authenticity, authentication, if you will, the testimony by signs, wonders, and miracles. Now there is a continuing work 
of the Holy Spirit that will bring about faith and faithfulness in the life of the church. It is gifts of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts as it's called. The church is going to continue the work of proclaiming the gospel message, pointing to the Son, preaching Christ, not in their own strength, but in the strength that God supplies through the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus said in John, he says, well, I'm going to w go away. And the disciples are, are greatly concerned. He said, don't let your heart be afraid. He says, I'm going to send another of the same kind. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will uniquely reside with you all the days of your life for those that are in Christ Jesus. A Holy Spirit who will be said to indwell the believer. A Holy Spirit will, who will bring about faith through the proclamation of this truth. And who will equip those disciples for the work of the ministry. The disciples receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It enables them to do, in a sense, a miraculous work, a wonderful work, and a great sign of the authenticity of the message. When they proclaim Christ, and an unregenerate sinner repents and believes, what greater work can there be? Jesus would say, after this, Acts 1-8, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit who is going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, and indeed they were. These cowards turned the world upside down in their courage, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't point to the, the signs and the wonders and the miracles that affirm Christ. They preached Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit gifted to them, accompanied the proclamation of Christ and brought about fruit. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work that brings about faith and brings about many sons and daughters to the obedience of the faith. It's not through their technique. It's not through their skillful rhetoric that brings thousands to saving faith. It is through the accompanying work of the Holy Spirit. Peter would just simply preach at Pentecost. And by God's grace, thousands would be saved. This is a work of the Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know God is still doing that now? He is working through those that have faith in him, through the power of the Spirit, to accomplish his work. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. I have a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 4.
Beloved, I'm saying it is the gifts of the Holy Spirit that uniquely equips the church then to continue and accomplish what Christ has called us to do to build the church. Verse 11 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. He's talking about the gifts that are given. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. The shepherd and teachers here in the original, you can think of a slash. It's a multiple word to speak of one office we would think of today as pastor. So he gives those gifts. It's not just the people. It's the enablement of the apostles to accomplish what they needed to do to the prophets to accomplish what they needed to do. The apostles, we know who are there. They're the direct sent ones. The prophets when, uh, would engage and proclaim the word of Christ to the local body of church that was brought about through the preaching ministry of the apostles. They were, both of them were uniquely gifted. This is prior to the completion of the New Testament record, the canon. And then you had the second group, evangelists and shepherd teachers. These would parallel apostles and prophets Evangelists would be what we might think of in modern day as missionaries, someone that is going forth, establishing churches, and those that would remain in the church and teach and lead the people would be the pastor. So these are gifted by the Holy Spirit to Christ's church. And for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These are gifts and works of the Holy Spirit. These are not people that are particularly skilled at rhetoric. These are not people that are very creative in their work. They may be all of that. But what accomplishes the work of the ministry of the the equipping of the saints is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the work and power of the Holy Spirit, which can open and illuminate the mind of those that would receive the word from men. For what purpose? To build us up to maturity, it says, the fullness of Christ, and so that what would happen? That you would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This reminds me of the admonition of the preacher of Hebrews, doesn't it? Who is giving great warning that you would neglect a great salvation and be spiritually drifting. Similar phraseology, tossed to and fro by waves. And then carried about by every wind of doctrine, like having no rudder to your ship, just out to drift, that you might crash on the rocks. The apostles and the prophets were authenticated by these supernatural works. But there's no apostles and prophets today in that sense. So how are you going to know if the missionary or the pastor, to use those categories, are right? How will they be authenticated 
They'll be authenticated by the Holy Spirit through his word. In God's word, he would lay down qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. In addition to character, and it doesn't mean this person is sinless, he would need to confess his sins and remember that Christ is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins, to cleanse uh, from all unrighteousness, but essentially not be characterized by a lifestyle of sinfulness. Someone that is self-controlled, upright, disciplined, but key in, in both these qualifications then that you can recognize that somebody is gifted by the Holy Spirit is, I'll read one section for you for the sake of time, Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That's the objective standard. You, you're not looking for some special event or act you look at the very word of God. He's holding firm to this trustworthy word. So why? So that he may be able to not only give sound instruction in doctrine, but also rebuke those who contradict it. I don't necessarily thrive on contradicting people or rebuking people, but when they contradict the word of God, they're contradicting the Holy Spirit. And it is the job of those that are gifted by the Holy Spirit to engage in that to also rebuke. Remember what Paul would tell the church at Galatia if somebody preaches any other gospel than the one I preach they are to be anathema that is condemned to eternal judgment. Our message today beloved is authenticated by the word of God. These gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit, however, is, does not just reside in missionaries and pastors. <laughs> it resides even much more in every member of the body of Christ who are gifted not according to our will, but according to his by the Holy Spirit. I'll just read you a few selections for the sake of time from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All of these, verse 1 Corinthians 12, 11, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God has arranged them, members of the body, as he chose. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God first appointed apostles, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, then prophets, then teachers, and then these other gifts, miracles, healing, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. The heart of the church is not some business organization that gathers together and, and has a great plan to accomplish this, that, and the other thing. It is a dynamic group of redeemed and regenerate people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit empowered then to accomplish his work. And beloved, that is the authentication given today. It is the authentication of simply, if you want to look at it individually, 
Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you have faith in him? Is this the delight of your heart to obey Christ, to believe in him? Do you see that expressed in how you might treat somebody else? Is this a priority of your life? Preacher of Hebrews would say, don't neglect it. Make that the focus of your life in all things. Yes, you're going to have other responsibilities and things that crowd your life in a given day. But ultimately, as Paul would say, for me to live is Christ. And that's a gift of the Holy Spirit to come to that confession. And I pray that is indeed your confession, Christ and Christ alone, and that we would pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Let us pray. Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate and lighten our minds, encourage those who need encouragement, bring to faith those that would need to indeed confess Christ as Lord. To your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, let me give you a moment to now to reflect on these things. You, if you um, need to confess Christ as Lord, you can do so now directly to him. Take a moment. that you grant us a glimpse of your grace and glory and may it be on our lips day to day. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we were going to sing Sweet Hour of Prayer, but now we're going to sing this other one. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. What's the number? 454. You know, and I wouldn't mind doing the Sweet Hour of Prayer, and I hope you do spend time thinking in prayer, but um, 454. My faith has found a resting place. And notice that it is in the person. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that is your expression as well. Let's stand and sing this together. 454 in your hymnals.
the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Father, we just pray that you would indeed help us to build a house upon the rock of our faith in Jesus Christ and to work on the cross. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. 